You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. Your host is trauma surgeon Dr. John Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a former Army colonel who served as director of the U.S. Army Trauma Training Center in Miami, Florida, and as chair of the ACS Army Committee on Trauma. Intensive care in intensive places. Lessons in critical care medicine from the battlefield. Our guest is Lieutenant Colonel and Dr. Alex Niven, pulmonary critical care physician and associate program director for the internal medicine residency at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Welcome, Dr. Niven. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I understand, Dr. Niven, that you have firsthand experience in the combat zone. What is the role of critical care medicine on the modern battlefield today? Well, quite honestly, I, I think it's an expanding role. You know, we've, uh, like any war, I think, learned a lot of lessons over the course of the last couple of years and dramatically advanced the different ways that we deliver medicine to both our active duty troops, our coalition forces in terms of the Iraqis and other nationalities that are serving in theater, and then also the civilian casualties that are there as well. And I think with more and more effective medical interventions at the point of injury, more and more individuals are presenting to our combat support hospitals critically ill. And our surgeons find that their time is frequently better spent in the operating room, leaving it to the intensivists to really take care of those large volume critical ill casualties after they've received their definitive operative management. So it sounds like you have a firsthand role in the management of some pretty severely injured patients. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. When we look at the number of people who have survived their initial injuries and come to the combat support hospital, it's really eye-opening and amazing to me just how well all those folks do. I think about the number of folks that I saw over the course of the seven months that I spent deployed, and literally 90-plus percent of those folks left the hospital doing well, either moving on to definitive care back in the United States through Germany or in terms of our, our Iraqi forces to local medical facilities for ongoing care. Well, certainly those are impressive results. And you were at a combat support hospital? I was. I was assigned as a staff intensivist and then also serving as a general internist for the 47th Combat Support Hospital back in 2006. Help our listeners to understand just what a combat support hospital does relative to civilian hospitals. Well, sure. So the combat support hospital is really the first definitive level of care on the battlefield in terms of providing both uh, really a full scope of inpatient care uh, in terms of initial emergency resuscitation in an emergency room environment, definitive operative intervention with really a full range of, of surgeons and surgical subspecialists to provide operative, definitive operative management for casualties, and then inpatient services, including an intensive care unit, and then a step-down or ward-type environment. And then we also provided um, general outpatient services in terms of uh, sick call, regular walk-in clinic, uh, an OBGYN clinic or GYN clinic, and then uh, occupational therapy and physical therapy. That was all the full range of services that we provided. So our, our goal is really to stabilize and provide definitive care in the theater setting for severely injured casualties and then evacuate those casualties in an expeditious manner out of theater if they cannot be returned to the battlefield to continue their definitive care through the medical evacuation system. And the theater is another word for the combat zone. Exactly. In this case, Iraq. It sounds like you're describing a modern hospital. 
You know, in many ways it is. You know, I, I remember the lessons that I learned when I was a lieutenant and a captain as far as the things that the, the capabilities of a deployed hospital or a combat support hospital back at that time. And I think, you know, really things have changed dramatically even in the short period of time that I've been in the service. When I think about the intensive care unit resources that I had while I was deployed, quite honestly, I had almost the same scope of technology and range of medical capabilities that I do here in a modern intensive care unit at Madigan Army Medical Center. My ventilators were state-of-the-art. You know, I had the ability to do continuous telemetry monitoring, measure both central venous pressure and continuous arterial line monitoring. We had a a 16-head CT scanner that was state-of-the-art, and actually the same model as the brand-new CT scanner that we have here, and an operating room that ran 24-7 with a very efficient blood bank and, and laboratory services to support it. So in many ways, I got the job done. I mean, it was a it was a trauma hospital. It, it was built for speed, and so we really could resuscitate a, a trauma casualty in really just phenomenal and aggressive manners. Well, I think it's easy to imagine that with such a high volume, that a number of lessons have been identified in how to manage the intensive care needs of a, a very sick casualty population. What are some of those lessons? Well, I think there's a lot of different lessons to be learned. I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion and controversy regarding the novel resuscitation practices that the Army Medical Department has been using on the battlefield. I think, you know, we all walked into our deployment experience over there with something of an open mind. I mean, we we heard the recommendations from our joint theater trauma surgeon regarding resuscitation using early aggressive use of packed red cells and, and thawed plasma and also early use of factor seven. You know, I'll tell you the tried and true principles that I think have held through several wars at this point of resuscitating to perfusion and not over-resuscitating individuals until they've had definitive operative repair of their surgical wounds, using early aggressive use of blood products rather than large volumes of crystalloid prior to transitioning to those blood products, and early aggressive operative intervention, at least in our hands, seemed to make a tremendous difference. In terms of post-operative management, I think because the, a lot of the mechanism of trauma that we're seeing over there is blast and blast injury related, we saw a fair degree of blast lung injury that complicated the acute respiratory distress syndrome that you would expect to see in a multiple trauma casualty. And for that, we were very thankful to have pretty advanced ventilator support that could allow us to, to use both lung protective ventilation strategies, sort of considered standard for ARDS, and also salvage modes like airway pressure release ventilation for individuals who had refractory hypoxic respiratory failure. And then really infections obviously are a a big concern when we talk about uh, the critically ill casualty who survived their initial insult. And so uh, early and aggressive management of those infections was something that we learned a lot from. When it comes to managing some of these infections, is the solution simply more powerful antibiotics? You know, I would actually say the exact opposite, John, and I I say that as a medical intensivist rather than a surgeon. I think everybody is is well aware of the struggles that many of the combat sport hospitals have had with multidrug-resistant acinetobacter. For that matter, a little bit of MRSA, although uh, ironically the major reservoir for that latter bug appears to be more U.S. service members than Iraqi nationals. 
you know, in terms of dealing with multidrug resistant gram negatives like Acinetobacter, and we also had a problem with, with Klebsiella and E. coli, really the take-home message that, that we learned over there was aggressive early surgical debridements and frequent take-backs until there was clear evidence of good control of the infection was really the key to success in treating those infections. Certainly, we used early and aggressive broad-spectrum antibiotics that would be effective against the common agents that we encountered over there. But really, it was the aggressive surgical management that made the difference. Were you involved in monitoring these wounds and Oh, absolutely. You know, that's one of the nice things about having a small, tight-knit group of people working together in a close environment is you really have a tremendous opportunity for personal and professional interaction that I don't think a, a regular hospital in the United States lends you on a regular basis. So I, I made a point whenever I had a patient who was going into the operating room, really for any reason, to at least stop by and take a look at the wounds and see what the surgeons were doing during the procedure. And when things were a little bit slower in the ICU, I took that opportunity to scrub in and, and spend some time. You just never really get the same feel for what's going on with the patient and where their wounds are in the state of healing unless you're actually there and seeing them. And that was really a, a tremendous opportunity and a learning experience for me. You'd mentioned earlier that you were managing patients with blast lung as a result of the explosions which occur with fair frequency in the combat zone. Is blast lung simply severe ARDS? You know, I think the short answer to that is no, although I will fully confess that dissecting out how much of the acute lung injury is from blast injury, how much of it is from the systemic inflammatory response from multi-organ trauma, and how much of it is potentially from transfusion-related acute lung injury, which I think we're recognizing probably occurs in, in much greater frequency than we previously recognized in the literature 10 or 20 years ago. I think blast lung in and of itself is a little bit of a different entity. Most of the data on this disease is really out of um, Israel and their experience with trauma patients there following similar mechanisms of injury. Certainly the patterns of radiographic changes that you see with blast lung are different. You know, classically the Israelis talk about um, sort of a bilateral hyalur or butterfly distribution of infiltrates. You know, certainly patchy asymmetric infiltrates and peripheral-based infiltrates are things that have also been described and things that we saw, likely because most of the injuries were occurred in non-confined locations, uh, people that would be out in open environments. I think the response to treatment in terms of mechanical ventilation and positive pressure was a little bit more rapid if you had isolated blast lung injury. And certainly I think that supports a little bit of the Israeli data that says that if you survive the acute injury from blast lung, that the resolution and physiologic sequelae carry with it a slightly more benign course with blast lung injury than other typical causes of ARDS. So those were a few of the lessons that I learned. There's a lot of the stuff in the literature talking about concern for gas embolism with positive pressure ventilation due to the shear forces and disruption of the alveolar capillary membrane following a blast injury. Quite honestly, we found ourselves in, in the position where we had no other choice but to, to use positive end expiratory pressure or fairly high mean airway pressures in some casualties, and we did not experience the same problem with air embolism or gas embolism. And that would be a significant finding. Yes, I think so. Well, it sounds like you're describing uh, Dr. Niven being part of a well-honed trauma team and taking critical care medicine to a distant land and in the end to a new level uh, of improvement for all critically ill patients. Uh, We have been talking with Lieutenant Colonel and Dr. Alex Niven about intensive care in difficult places. Dr. Niven, thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Strength to Heal, 
on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. The Strength to Heal is brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. For more information on this or any other program and to access our on-demand features, please visit us at ReachMD.com. For more information regarding Army medicine, go to healthcare.goarmy.com slash heal to learn more. When we talk to Captain Ernesto Cardenas, an OBGYN in the Army Medical Corps, we asked him why he chose the Army for his practice. His answer surprised us. He didn't talk about being given an established practice or not having to worry about insurance, employees, or rent. He didn't say that he enjoyed having the most advanced technology at his disposal or being a member of one of the world's largest healthcare systems. Captain Cardenas talked about giving back to the country that had given him so much. He went on to tell us about practicing in a humanitarian mission to his native Colombia and the sense of pride he felt in providing free care to people in need there. A medical career in the U.S. Army or Army Reserve is rewarding on many levels, personal and professional. You can reward your career, your country, and your life for a lifetime. Exercise your strength to heal. Visit healthcare.goarmy.com heal to learn more. That's healthcare.goarmy.com heal.